But Lord, you came low and you came flesh so that we might hear and see and be embraced by you. And so, Lord, you are the living word even now through your spirit. We pray that you would speak to us and that you would do that surgery that we need uh, in our lives to bring conviction and encouragement, strength and transformation. And we pray this for these young ones as they go to Friends of Jesus and us who remain here as well. And we pray that you would speak now even through this weak vessel in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Faith into our Fight for Joy uh, message series. This is the last one in the epistle to the Philippians. Uh, hopefully you've been experiencing some increased joy, at least that's been our prayer. So, you know, when you go to a, uh, a physician and you have an ailment or you're seeing a medical attendant, sometimes uh, one of the questions that they will ask you is this. Uh, from a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain level? 10 being the highest. Well, have you ever had a physician ask you from a scale of 1 to 10, what is your joy level? Like how is your, would the joy being the high, 10 being the highest? Well, I think that would be a good, uh, you know, good, good evaluation tool, diagnostic test for us, is what is your joy level? And I wish I had asked that at the beginning of this series, so we could do an evaluation at, uh, at the end, but so what, you know? Why don't you just go ahead and just jot down on your bulletin or piece of paper what your sense of joy level is. Let's say one to three would be that you're in the pits. Uh, you feel far from God, forsaken, abandoned. You really feel low in your sense of joy. And five or six, well, I'm doing okay, you know? I'm, I'm making it. Uh, you know, it's good for me, but nothing to write home about. And then 7 to 10, let's say that you're really starting to feel it. You're feeling the joy. You're, you know, you're growing stronger in the joy. Now, let me say a 10 is like a shout-out. You're leaping out of the pews. You're dancing and singing and praising the Lord kind of joy. That's, that's at the 10. But just like on that scale... Where would you put yourself in that scale of 1 to 10 on joy? Well, you need to know this. Jesus wants you to experience a full joy. He, wants, he prays to his Father in John 17, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that you may have the full measure the abounding joy, my joy within them. And he tells his disciples in John 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And so Jesus' prayer, his desire, is that we would live in the fullness of his joy. And so Paul really provides for us a modeling, an example of one who actually is living in that joy in the Lord. And so he just told them uh, to follow his example, whatever you've seen and heard, and pr uh, put these into practice. And so then he comes to these last words in, in, the, in the fourth chapter, verse 10. Let's consider these. I rejoice greatly, and this is, by the way, is the NIV tra uh, translation. I, I, didn't, I, I missed the ESV, but this is, this is just as good, okay? So it's okay. 
I rejoice greatly in the Lord that, you, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set, set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and even more, I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. We struggle being content. A couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, uh, they profiled a story about a man named Fabrice Grinda, a tech entrepreneur whose worth was estimated to be around $100 million, who lived on a 20-acre estate. He drove a $300,000 McLaren sports car, but as he approached the uh, 40 years old, he became increasingly dissatisfied with his life, and so he ditched and he donated his material trappings in search for happiness, downsizing to a suitcase and backpack with just 50 items and two pairs of jeans, and began dropping in on various family members and friends around the world that he wanted to connect with more relationally. But he found out that after about three days, he wore out his welcome. People just couldn't connect with his lifestyle. Uh, and uh, he tried dating, but it really hasn't worked out. And his mother says she wouldn't want to be his girl. Mr. Grinda, the man who appears to have it all is still searching for happiness. Bob Dylan once sang, How many times have you heard someone say, If I had his money, I would do things my way. But little did they know, it's, hard, it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Discontentment is chronic in our world. One survey found that only 30% of people aged 18 to 39 considered themselves very satisfied with life. Only one out of six persons are happy with their income. Haggai kind of talked about this in the first chapter. God says, you have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but, are, but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Uh, Proverbs talks about death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. 
and uh, Steve Brown, he said that the most unhappy person in the world is not someone who didn't get what he or she wanted. The most unhappy person is the one who got what he or she wanted and then found out that it wasn't as wonderful as expected. And so we as a people, we, we, we struggle with being content, and we live in a society that struggles with discontentment. And this makes what the Apostle Paul says in this sentence or in this passage as he's, he's in a, a Roman prison, more shocking and curious to us. I have learned, he says, in whatever situation I am to be content. And so what I'd like to talk to you about is being content and how to learn being content. Uh, and here we see this calling to contentment, the learning of contentment, the secret of contentment, and the mission in contentment. And so Paul talks about this calling. Uh, he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. And of course, Paul, again, he has been showing forth the call to be a people that rejoice uh, in the Lord, uh, that they can rejoice as they pursue unity, as we saw last week, as they pursue prayer, as they pursue thinking thoughts of excellence and truth and beauty. As they give themselves to these things, they are fighting for the unity. And he says, follow my example. Practice what you've seen and heard in me. And so the call to contentment is something he presents before them as a living example. Now, contentment, what does it mean? Well, it's a word that means actually sufficiency. To be possessed with sufficient strength for, all, for a thing or a situation. To be satisfied with what one has. To be, uh, to be contented with one's lot. I'm at peace. I'm at rest with my situation. And God is considered the all-sufficient one. He needs no one. He needs no help. He is fully sufficient in himself. But God, in his grace, has communicated and has, has, has given to his people his sufficiency. And so when Jesus comes... It says in John 1, 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have received grace upon grace. And so some Roman soldiers uh, had appealed to John the Baptist when he was baptizing by the Jordan, and, and he was calling them to repentance. And the Roman soldiers said, what should we do? And in Luke 3, he says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content, be satisfied with your pay, live within your means. Equally, Paul warns young pastor Timothy about the dangers and the idolatries of wanting to get rich. And he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. There's a uh, man, a Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. He lived about 400 years ago. And he wrote uh, this book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And his book basically seeks to... Uh, to present that, and it's really a book all around the passage that we're looking at today. 
Some have read this book, by the way, and have said, read this great work and toss all those written by people who will be forgotten next year. It will set your heart on fire and elevate your soul. So there's a lot of good thoughts in this. Well, one of the things he says, now Christian quietness is opposed to all these things. When afflictions come, whatever it is, you do not murmur. Though you feel it, though you make your cry to God, though you desire to be delivered and seek it by all good means, yet you do not murmur or repine, you do not fret or vex yourself, there is not a tumultuousness of spirit in you, not an instability, there is not distracting fears in your hearts, no sinking discouragement, no unworthy shifts, no rising in rebellion against God in any way. This quietness of spirit under affliction, uh, when the soul is so far able to bear an affliction as to keep quiet under, this is one expression. And as I think about uh, this quietness, this satisfaction in the midst of affliction. Uh, I also think about uh, Psalm 131, where the psalmist says, My heart's not proud, O Lord. My eyes aren't haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for, for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And so this, this is quite a challenging call to be a people of contentment, to have a pursuit of contentment. Uh, and uh, it's been said that this call, contentment, deals with temptation. It prepares a Christian for any type of service uh, it requires of them. It brings great comfort no matter how bleak things may appear. And so this is a huge calling, and it's not natural, is it? It is really supernatural to have this kind of thing. And so that's why Paul says, I have learned to be content. It is not intuitive. It is not our normal response. It is something that uh, it has to be taught and learned over time, incrementally, uh, bit by bit, uh, testing circumstances upon circumstances. You know, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, whatever, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Well, Paul didn't just get there. He experienced that. He grew in taking his worries and his anxieties to the Lord. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that, uh, that they were under great pressure far beyond their ability to endure, and they felt the sentence of death. But this happened that they might not rely on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, Paul experienced over and over again, he talks about how he was uh, one who went hungry and thirsty. He was in rags, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, brutally treated, he was homeless. In all these situations, Paul has learned what it meant to be content and satisfied with, with Christ. Uh, he talks about having uh, uh, plenty, being abounding, that he can experience uh, uh, riches, but as well as dealing with poverty and being in want and need and being brought low. He talks about these extremes, and it's almost like he's put in this context where he's experiencing these different uh, aspects that he might learn to find his full satisfaction in God. And so Paul uh, gives a great expression of this. It doesn't mean that we don't cry out to God or that we don't 
ask God to fix things in our lives or that we don't have desires that we shouldn't bring to God. God wants our desires. He wants our pains. He wants all of our thoughts on these things. And uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that uh, he, to keep him from being conceited, he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment him. Obviously, uh, you know, God allowed Satan to torment uh, Paul, but God was in control. But uh, this torment happened to Paul. We don't know what that particular thorn in the flesh was. But he says he prayed three times, God, take this away. This is so hard. Would you remove this? And he prayed three times fervently. But he heard the Lord say to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. And so for Christ's sake, he says, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. You know, what we find here is this is part of the learning curve, isn't it? It's part of how God, in a sense, places us in his gymnasium. You know, he's working on us. And I can think of back in Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, where... He gives the illustration of the Israelites out in the wilderness for 40 years. And God says there in chapter 8, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And so God is telling the Israelites, man, I love you so much, I'm going to really test you. <laughs> I'm going to work you over. I'm going to really shape you up. You know, I had a, a, got a body pump at the Y in the mornings, and we had a new instructor and she really wanted some feedback from folks. And this instructor was actually really jacked up the level of intensity. And so I, I went up to her. I says, well, you know, sometimes there's some slacker coaches out there. And, you know, they're kind of easygoing. I haven't really met too many of those. But then most of the coaches are really good. You know, they really they give a good workout. But then there's another coach. It's a kick-your-butt kind of coach that really just jacks up the level. I said, you're a kick-your-butt kind of coach. I said, you have intensified the level of workout. I said, you know, it's been hard, but I know it's been good for me. Well, God is this excellent coach, and he will work you out, because his, but his intention is for your highest good. He is building spiritual muscles for his own glory and for your good. And it's a great gym to be a part of what God is doing. Uh, the psalmist learned this. He says in Psalm 119, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It was good for me to be afflicted. I, I'm not there yet, by the way. I don't necessarily say it was good for me to be afflicted. But that's what the psalmist is saying to us. You know, Johnny Erickson, uh, she's uh, quadriplegic. She's been paralyzed since she was 18. She is, I wish she's in her 60s. She's, she's been paralyzed for over 40 years. And uh, she brings wheelchairs to developing nations and gives Bibles out. And Anyhow, she went to uh, Ghana 
West Africa. And while she was there, a man uh, paralyzed with polio dragged himself up using his hands to crawl with rubber thongs on his palms, on his hands. And he says to Johnny, welcome, Johnny, to our country where God is so much bigger. And he is bigger, Johnny, because we need him more. And Johnny said that my God is bigger than a lot of people because she needs him so much. And she talked about how she wakes up sometimes in the middle of the night with this excruciating pain in her neck, uh, new limitations, new challenges. And so she has to cry out to God. But this is what she says, hardship does not make does, hardship does make for a stronger faith, a more buoyant prayer life, a livelier hope in heaven, a sincere interest in God's word, and a sensitivity towards those who are hurting, and a shifting of priorities, that which is eternal. For when we are weak, God always seems bigger because we need him most. And so true contentment is that movement of God's work in our lives to shape us and to mold us and to show that he is bigger, and that he will take us, and he will often break us in order to reshape us. It's hard. It's a hard work. And it's been said that a person who has a carnal heart, who doesn't understand or doesn't know this God, they really have no ability, no grace to, to find that kind of contentment. But, but Paul talks about the secret. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He talks about this secret, and actually that word to learn the secret, the word that's expressed in here is a word that means uh, to initiate into the mysteries. It is uh, to give one an intimate acquaintance with a thing. And so there is this expression of that Christ, through uh, these trials and tribulations, is drawing us into a deeper awareness of the mysteries of Christ and of his greatness. In the world, there's philosophers like the Stoics uh, that would uh, have a very high value on the call to contentment. Um, they, would, they would talk about that that is the, uh, a jewel of, of the Stoics. And it was the idea to have an absolute uh, independence of all things, a state of mind that is not affected by anything. And Epictetus says, begin with a cup. And this is one of the, 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 one of the mechanisms where they don't care about anything about what happens to them. And says, begin with a cup or household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to, to yourself. And if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough and if you try hard enough, you will, be, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. The stoic aim was to abolish every feeling of the human heart. But that is not the contentment of Christ. 
That is not the contentment of God in the scriptures. God doesn't want us to deny our feelings. He wants us to bring our feelings to him. He wants us to pour out our hearts. The whole Psalms are about two-thirds are laments out of the depths of loss and grief and trials and agonies. And God treasures our cries to him to bring us uh, our agonies to him. But we are called to understand the secret, to understand the mysteries, to dive into those mysteries. And we find that Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So the source of our contentment is in a person. It's in a relationship. It is not by just us trying harder and, you know, and having a stronger grip. And by the force of our will, it is by the force of Christ's power and about his presence. And so we do all things. Paul can do all things through Christ. Contentment is not a feeling you can sense immediately as as you do the right things, it is a skill you must acquire by patiently communing with the right person. To know Christ in this way requires daily time, sacrifice, and energy in his word and presence. And so we find this calling to understand this mysteries. And as you think about the riches of the glory of, of God that Paul talks about, what are those riches? What are those riches? Well, Paul talks to Ephesians that he's praying for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which you've been called, the riches of, his, of the glorious inheritance in the saint. He talks about some of these riches in Ephesians chapter 1. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have riches of his grace. More and more, and the scriptures talk about the immeasurable riches of the kindness of Christ towards us. There's abundant language about this wealth that we have, these riches that we possess. And yet, we often don't recognize them. Well, what is the core source of these riches? Well, Paul actually tells us in Colossians chapter 127, he says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the Glorious riches of this mystery. And what is the glorious riches of this mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. <laughs> you know, it is an astounding thing when Jesus, praying to the Father, telling his disciples that he's sending the Holy Spirit, and he's saying that the Father and the Son are going to make their home in people of faith, in believers, that you within yourself have the infinite, infinite, immeasurable God of the universe living, dwelling inside of you so that you are never away from him. You will always have access to the Father's love. You can cry out at any moment in the midst of the night. You can sing songs and he is there for you. He is there with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. You have the riches of the glory of God. Paul was rebuking the Corinthians because they were boasting in who they were following and what they had. And, you know, I'm following Paul, I'm following Peter and, and Apollos. And, and he says, stop this boasting. 
And he says, no more things like this. All things are yours in Christ. Christ talks about he's been, he, you have been given the kingdom. You have his inheritance. You have his name. I remember uh, my dad was a master plumber, and he had an account with a old company called Schumacher & Sorrow on Greenmount Avenue, and I was his son, but, you know, they didn't really know me, but I walked in there, and I said, you know, my dad is, you know, Charles Garriott. Oh, yes. You know, it immediately gave me access. The reality is that you have immediate access. You have wealth. You have an account. You have, you have the riches of heaven. And so do we live in that? Uh, it's been interesting that uh, one of the <clears throat> examples that Jeremiah Burroughs gave about the difference between people who find external ways to fortress their life and the difference between a believer. He says, to be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's, fi uh, man's clothes by the fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of the soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of the body. It is the, it is the heat that's emanating from the body. But you have the Holy Spirit. You have Christ in you emanating out. And so Paul is encouraging us to live within the glorious riches that he has. And he says, what, no, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ears heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, John Piper, he's a pastor, he, he talks about being a Christian hedonist. You know, someone who's a Christian who, who, who loves pleasure, uh, who loves, you know, happiness. And guess what? He says, I want all Christians to be Christian hedonists who have these great desires for happiness and pleasure because God's made us for happiness and pleasure. But often we have and seek our happiness and pleasure in things that our hearts are not made for, and they become idols. But he says, Christian hedonism is not a contradiction. It is designed the vast ocean depth pleasures of God more than the mud puddle pleasures of wealth, power, and lust. And he quotes Psalm 1611, you show me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God built you with pleasure. God built you with strong desires for happiness. But everything, but our happiness is often not experienced because our desires aren't big enough. Our wishes aren't great enough. God is the only one that can satisfy us. And so we are encouraged to live within the mystery of that contentment, that Christ in us. But we see that finally the mission of contentment. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. And so Paul here, he is giving uh, this encouragement to the Philippians who had been generous to supporting Paul, who have provided for him while he's been in prison. But they were the first church to really support Paul in the mission field. And we find that in, in Acts chapter 17, 18, where he is going into Philippi and the Macedonia. And they are the first ones to like support Paul. But when Paul went to Corinth, he knew that the Corinthians had a view about preachers, that they're about money. They're about like asking for, you know, basically charging people and they're in it for the money. And so Paul, when he went to Corinth, he, his, he, did, he wanted to take away any kind of 
obstacle of the gospel, and he did not allow any money to be given to him for his ministry. He wanted to make sure that they knew that this was pure grace and that he would, he would remove that offense of the gospel. But the Macedonians were supporting Paul so that he could preach the gospel. He was free to preach the gospel. And so Paul is affirming the Philippians in their generosity and their care. And he's, he's talking to them about how God supplies all of their needs according to his riches in Christ. And Paul tells the Corinthians who were struggling being generous, he says, you will be made rich in every way so you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And he mentions this whole thing about a, sacred, a fragrant offering. The burnt offering in the Old Testament was an expression that the person was giving them their whole selves to you. And as the offering uh, was, was, was under the fire, the smoke would rise and it would be a fragrant offering in God's, in God's nose. And, and we find this, this picture of God being pleased with the offerings of God's people. And so God wants us to be a people who sustain generosity. And I have to say that uh, when I was 16 years old, I first learned about tithing, uh, that it was kind of the uh, kind of a, a principle that we found in the scriptures, and it was kind of a foundational thing. And I just, you know, I can remember the first time that, like, I gave a tithe of my summer earnings, and it was felt like a huge sum of money. And I have to tell you that it was like, wow, this is deep, you know. I mean, I could have spent this on, like, you know, maybe some skis or something on the car. But I learned that that was a true expression of living faith. And God, you know, there's only one place in the whole of Scripture that God tells us to test him in something, and it's in Malachi 3. And he talks about test him in giving your full tithe into the storehouse of God, and it will, you will overflow with abundance. And Paul is talking about how God will bless people as they continue to be people of faith. And so Paul ends this letter with acknowledging the contentment that he has with God. And he not acknowledges the peace and the joy that he experiences. And so as we close this, this season of uh, this epistle, Fighting for Joy, I was thinking about the applications on this for what's taken place this past week uh, in our Supreme Court. I thought it would be appropriate to, you know, what is the posture for the believer, for the church of Christ in the midst of, of some of the uh, national uh, developments that have taken place? As many of you know, this past Friday, the Supreme Court made official uh, what our state of Maryland made official two years ago, which is the legal redefining of marriage with all of its rights and privileges to include people of the same gender. Uh, this has been a cause of great rejoicing for many people who felt a healing and a final affirmation in their orientation and convictions concerning marriage equality. For others, it felt like a great disturbing departure from history and their convictions, whether from a sense of natural order or faith convictions. And it is not my purpose to address these differing political perspectives here, yet it is my purpose to affirm Paul's calling to the church in this passage or in this book, which is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul is giving that charge to believers. He's in prison. 
He is in a Roman prison. Paul is not rejoicing in his circumstances. He is rejoicing in the Lord. Regardless of what is happening in our lives personally or in our society at large, as God's people, we are called to be a people who rejoice. Why? Because God reigns. Because Christ rules. And the gospel of his kingdom will advance no matter what. Paul calls us to pray about everything with all prayers and supplication, with thanksgiving. One of the things I am thankful and grateful for is to live in a nation where there is freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble regardless of one faith's religion or worldviews, that we live in a society that promotes and protects individual rights and that encourages the peaceful coexistence of people from all kinds of backgrounds and walks of life that we have the opportunity to live out and share our convictions in the marketplace with dignity and respect. These are rights we should treasure and honor. What should be the posture of the bride of Christ, the church in such times? To be what we are called to be at all times, a grace-filled colony of the kingdom of God on earth, a living witness of Christ and the gospel in this place. That regardless of a person's faith or religion or worldview or sexual orientation or ethnicity, class, or gender identity, Christ calls us to love and to respect all his image bearers that we might be faithful witnesses of his amazing grace. That while we might disagree with a person's perspectives, we value and esteem them and wish God's richest blessings upon them that they might know him personally through Jesus Christ in this, we lead with love and we lead with friendship, not judgment. That we would be a welcoming community, a beloved community where outsiders find God's embrace even as we love and seek submission to and speak God's word. That we would be a humble, repenting community where we have failed to live consistent with the truths we confess or living true to the ethics of Christ who demonstrated love to all, especially to those deemed sinners or outcasts in society. In this, we as believers in historic Christian faith should be the first to repent of our oppressive treatment towards God's image bearers. And that we would model, present, and protect the gospel of God's grace in our marriages and our families, affirming Christ's call in Matthew 19, who repeated Genesis 2 in the re, to the religious teachers whose teaching weakened marriage and said that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate that we would be a redemptive, reconciling, restoring community by praying for and loving our neighbors and the city that God has called us to, and that love would abound more and more among us with all wisdom and depth of insight, and that all people would see and find and know Christ among us. May God help us to live in, this, in his presence and in this joy and in this peace and in this contentment that Christ might be glorified among us. Well, you've had about 30 minutes of my talk. And I, if I were to ask you now, has your joy increased at all? Is there an increase of your joy? Some of you might say, well, no, actually, it's kind of like slipped while you've been talking. I don't know what your joy level is, 
But here's the deal. And someone talked to me yesterday and says, look, I, I need to get into a small group or a community group because I need to keep this joy coming. I need to keep the, you know, joy is like a sieve. It needs to, you need to constantly fill it up. You need to be in the means of grace, God's word, God's fellowship, and worship and prayer in the scriptures. And so uh, get connected. Fight for joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for, for your presence in our midst for uh, this passage from Paul, who is clear about where our satisfaction is, our contentment, uh, the source of our joy. Lord Jesus, thank you that you live within us and that you've given us a wonderful calling. God, God, help us to be people that emanate joy in you and help us to be a people that show forth a love for others. And we commit ourselves to you in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.